Hello, and you're very welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti. A very happy new year to you. Well, this week we're talking about money, money and emotions, money and power, women and wealth management, people's philosophies around wealth, about philanthropy and using money for good and providing for our future. My guest this week is Shona Johnson, a Dublin woman who's now back in Ireland as a Director of Wealth Management with Key Capital. And that's after more than 15 years working with JP Morgan's private bank in London and Luxembourg. Having worked with very wealthy family firms, charities, entrepreneurs in London and now in Dublin, Shona has some really interesting insights to share on money, philanthropy and sustainable investing. Shona believes people can have very entrenched beliefs and values around money and wealth, which they can find very difficult to express even within their own families. You know, it, it's one of those words that people don't like talking about. You know, they'd sooner have a conversation about religion or politics than money, and particularly their own money. From research we've heard about before from Wealthy Her, we know that financial institutions can also use a lot of jargon when it comes to dealing with clients who don't work in finance. People can find this really confusing. It's like you don't need to simplify it, but you also don't need to overcomplicate it. And I think that goes for men and women. I think the difference is men will just nod, nod and agree, even if they don't completely understand everything. Whereas women will, you know, either lose interest or will put their hand up and say, tell me more. When it comes to women and money and investments, financial institutions have traditionally been particularly slow paying attention to women's wealth, women's investment patterns and to women entrepreneurs. But Shona says this is changing. If you think about it, like a third of the world's wealth is now held by women. And, you know, a lot of that is earned Um, It's not inherited or the proceeds of a divorce settlement. It is earned. The environment, ESG is the new phrases that stands for environment, social and governance. These issues are now playing a huge role in investment patterns, Shona says. It's no longer a tick box exercise when it comes to wealth management. It is a a new era for sure when it comes to, to investing. You know, companies just... They can't just be not doing the wrong things. They need to be visibly doing the right things. Shona studied languages in DCU and later did a master's on the Smurfit graduate programme, which led her to work in finance in Paris initially before being drawn to London. Later in the podcast, she shares her five pearls of wisdom from what she's learnt along the way. Stay tuned for some women's wisdom. So hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. Today my guest is Shona Johnson, who's Director at Key Capital Private. Shona, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking part. Thanks, Angie. Thanks for inviting me along. Tell me a little bit about what you do. I work in wealth management, which is an area of banking which really appealed to me um, due to the human side of the numbers, I suppose. I started my career in JP Morgan in London in 2005, And I was working on the trading floor. And, you know, when you're dealing with counterparties who are corporate entities, it's very different to dealing with families who are managing the emotional side of their wealth. And so I was really drawn to that part of the bank. I had an opportunity to move internally, so I took it. You know, most of my career then since then has been spent in, in, in private wealth management. That involves working with families mostly on their short, medium and long-term wealth 
planning goals. And it's not just about investing. It's about the bigger picture. Um, perhaps they have a family business as well. They might have children that they want to pass it on to. So it's asking all of those questions around, you know, what is it all for? And how, how, do you, how do you divide it up into different pots? I mean, the first one of the first sentences you said there was talking about the emotional side of money. Like, so we don't think of emotion and money in the same way, but yet there's huge emotion tied up in money because of its money and power and the ability to do stuff, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, if you're, if you're investing money on behalf of your company, that it's very transactional. Whereas if you're investing your own hard-earned money, it, you know... It, it is emotional and there is a fear element to it, um, which can sometimes lead people to delay making decisions because they want to be absolutely sure they're getting it right. So there's fear and there's emotion and there's love and also this desire to provide for the future for the family. Absolutely. Which yeah. is, is fundamental in people, isn't it? They yeah. want to look after their own. Mm-hmm. What did you do in London? What was your actual day-to-day work about? So after a, after a stint in the trading uh, world, I moved into the private bank at JP Morgan. And um, Before you move on to that, the trading bank, is that very macho, male-dominated? You kind of get the picture that it is. Y- yes. I, I think, you know, there's no, you can't really mince your words on it. It, it was, I would say, 90% men on the, f- on, on the trading floor. Um, and it was a high-pressured environment. But again, I made some great friends in that in that first year with J.P. Morgan, who are still great friends today. Was it tough? Um, it was tough, but in a, in a good way, if that makes sense, because you learned so quickly and you'd never get bored because as soon as you'd mastered something, you were given additional responsibility. So that was great. And finance must have been changing quite a lot at the time, was it? Oh, absolutely. So this was pre-2008. You know, at that point, I was on the derivative side, so there was a lot of innovation still in that side of, of, of finance. And uh, it was always something new to learn. Every day was a school day. So you've got a broad base, and then you moved to private wealth management. What was that like? Um, that was a much different environment. For, for the same bank, it was like a, as I, as I described it, like a smaller bank within a really big bank. And again, pre-08, private banking was, wasn't the, the kind of the spotlight part of, of the business that it is today. It, it was a different environment. I would say the ratio of men to women was 50-50. What would it have been on the trading floor in derivatives? 90-10 on the trading floor. Men so to women. So d- different atmosphere even on a day-to-day basis. Very different. Much quieter. The first thing I noticed when I joined the private bank was, oh my goodness, it's so quiet. <laughs> I couldn't... The, the silence was deafening. The people weren't shouting at each other. No. But it was a lovely environment. And... Um, I started off looking at investment risk management. So looking at all different types of investments and uh, the risk associated with making recommendations to clients of these investments and and portfolios. So it was a really good base for what was to come in terms of my, my role as an investment advisor. So is there a lot of money being invested on behalf of private clients in London? Is it beyond our comprehension for normal people? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it is. Clients can be family offices or they can be individuals. They can be family foundations. Some of our clients were charities because they still have to invest their money and they've got plans to spend it down over perhaps a decade or longer, um, operating an endowment kind of model almost. Some of the clients would have been um, 
corporate executives, others would have inherited wealth. Some were entrepreneurs who had done really well for themselves, maybe even more than once. Did you notice a pattern over time that, you know, more women are getting into that category? You know, is there less of a, a difference be, between men and women now in terms of wealth management? So something I've always tried to do, Angie, is think about the family as a unit. And even if the, the patriarch or the, the main breadwinner, should we say, was the, the man, I would always ask, you know, would you like to bring your wife to the next meeting? Um, it's important that she understand what's going on and that she's involved in the conversation. And, you know, I guess there were two, if you, you want to put a broad brush on it, there were two types of guys. Like, there'd be some who'd say, oh, she's not interested or she'd be bored. There are others who'd say, well, she makes all the decisions at home anyway. Um, I'll tell her all about it after the meeting, but she's really busy and she doesn't have time to come in. And then there were others who'd say, absolutely, let's bring her along to lunch the next time and, and we can talk about, you know, broader topics. And as my role evolved, you know, from investment advisor to a broader relationship manager, I really enjoyed having the conversation on, on the bigger picture stuff as well. Like, you know, the philosophical, you know, wh what's it all for? What if, you know, something happens to you? Are your kids ready for what's coming to them? Those type of questions. Big things to talk about, aren't they? And do people give enough time to this kind of conversation, do you think? No, they don't. Really? Um, no, How does that manifest not. itself? So they come into your office for this consult or they go to lunch with you mm -hmm. for a consultation. How does that suddenly appear? How does it manifest? Sometimes, you know, the question comes up, um, have you made your will? And that can be, that can lead to all sorts of further answers on, on um, planning for the, the inevitable um, whether it's death or taxes, you got to plan for both. Or divorce as well. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, indeed, and actually, you know, that has happened. And, and I've worked with a few female clients who've, you know, had their divorce settlement and they weren't used to running the money of the household. And suddenly they had this big pot and they didn't really know where to start. So I really enjoyed my role, you know, on that journey with them and helping them to be independent, you know, and, and to understand, okay, how long do they need to live on this? Um, should they go back to work? Should they launch a career for themselves? And it was wonderful to see, you know, their, their kind of their new chapter in their lives and them regaining independence. Do you think women's philosophy and men's philosophy when, philosophy when it comes to, to money is different? Are there, you know, in broad strokes? Yeah, broad strokes, I would say women think longer term more generally they plan for the longer term and they tend to involve a lot more stakeholders in their consideration because if you think about it at any given time women are juggling many tasks they're no matter how wealthy they are they're still running a household in some way shape or form and they're just thinking about all the different scenarios that could play out in, in any given situation so when they're planning on the financial side, they are thinking about, you know, mitigating certain risks, all the what ifs. I think when men are thinking about it, they're in the moment and they certainly make decisions quicker because I think they're capable of being more in the moment than we are. That's just from my own 
experience and my own observation. So when men are thinking, are they thinking about short-term gain more often than long-term, uh, you know, recurring income? Um, I, I wouldn't want to generalize to that extent, but I'd say a, a male investor is probably more likely to, to think shorter term than, than a female investor um, on a particular transaction. Yeah. Do you think women realize the power that they have when it comes to money? Do you think they prepare enough and plan enough? And I'm not just talking about women mm. with huge divorce settlements or you know, who are part of a large company or a large firm, but like women day to day, do they ever surprise you at a little financial planning or they just leave the, all that to himself or herself? No, I think, I think the word you use, power, is an interesting one. And I don't, I don't associate, you know, power. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't associate wealth with power. I would associate it with an ability to make decisions more freely. Um, I would associate it with, yeah, having financial independence is super important. Um, and I suppose, you know, being the one at home making decisions and, and making the final call you know, going from being able to influence decisions to being the decision maker certainly, you know, is helped by by having having wealth. Um, but I think it also leads to a lot more work and admin and analysis paralysis. So actually, it can cause it can cause problems as well as uh, as making life easier. Yeah, I, I sort of get what you mean by analysis paralysis, but maybe tell me a little bit more about that. When it comes to the practical side of things, which we should all be taught in school, by the way, you know, life insurance, critical illness, um, pensions, you know, I think everybody should come out of school with the basic knowledge of those, as well as wills, you know, so it's ingrained in us. Um, but who thinks about that when they're 20? No, exactly. But the thing is, I think it's, it's really dependent on who your employer is when you first start working as to how well you understand those different concepts. Um, because you can learn about them in a book, but actually it's in practice. Uh, when you're faced with making those decisions, how much information do you have at your fingertips to make them? And, um, you know, people are busy and those things just come way down the to-do list for a lot of people of all different levels of wealth. Do people get swamped with too much information and they don't know how to navigate it, is it? Exactly. And that's where the analysis paralysis comes in, right? If you've got too much choice, it's very, very hard to whittle it down. So busy, successful businesswomen just want somebody to help them. Give me the top three. Which one should I pick? Now, an advisor can't tell you which one to pick unless you spend time sit, sitting down with them, telling them all about your hopes and fears and dreams and your family and, you know, really going into the nuts and bolts and the detail. I think there's, you know, there's a kind of a, a misconception that you can just go in and, and buy these things without sharing too much information. But, you know, the most tailored advice can be given only when you've shared with the other side, you know. Yeah, and when you talk about share, you're not just sharing information, you're sharing your values and your philosophies. And people have very different philosophies when it comes to money, don't they? They do, yeah. yeah. How does it show up with the client? You know, it's, it's one of those words that people don't like talking about. You know, they'd sooner have a conversation about religion or politics than money, and particularly their own money. It, it is interesting, and, and it does make it harder to prepare the next gen for anything they might be inheriting um, if, if it's not talked about at the, at the kitchen table, for example. 
And everybody has a kitchen table, <laughs> no matter who you are. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I mean, there's an old saying, I, I probably won't get this right, but you know, the first generation makes it, the second generation guards it, and the third squanders it. So what can families do who have made money and who've worked really hard to make their money? How can they ensure that the next generation and the generation of that appreciates the effort that went into that? and doesn't squander it. How do, how do we educate the next generation in families or in society? So money is often seen as a taboo word and some parents feel like they should keep their kids in the dark about what's coming to them because they don't want them to have a sense of entitlement. They want them to stay in school and develop a good work ethic. But I've seen families who've managed this brilliantly and who, who've managed to pass on those values of working hard to their kids and ensure that they're savvy enough to deal with their inheritance when it comes to, the, to that as well. There are ways to educate kids on money management from a, a very young age. Um, and it's something as simple as giving them pocket money, but only in return for doing chores. Small things like put your toys in the box. Okay, here's, you know, a euro. Um, you know, but just understanding that they don't just get handouts for doing nothing, that they get it in return for something. Um, the other one that I love and I, I've used with my nephews is the, the three pots philosophy, um, which is, you know, let's say at Christmas or at your birthday, you get, you, you get given some money. You tell them that it actually doesn't just get all into your piggy bank or your whatever your virtual piggy bank is, that there are three of them. One is labeled spend, one is labeled save, and one is labeled share. But then you talk to them about, well, what are you saving for? And understanding, you know, that you can, you can have this toy now or you can save up and have this bigger toy in a few months' time. And just the concept of, you know, compounding over time without necessarily getting into the technicalities of it. But then share, you know, it can be putting money, you know, into a bake sale at school. Um, it can be giving money to a homeless person on the street or buying a present for your granny. You know, it's just thinking about other people. It's not all for you. And saving, it's not all for now. So trying to remove that instant gratification with a delayed gratification type of message. So there's a mix in the bag there, yeah. yeah. So that, that's when you're dealing with kids, but how do we translate that into, but do, you th do you think that's a good foundation for people when they're getting older as well? Absolutely, yeah. I think we should all have a, uh, spend, save and share pot in our in our bank accounts. And, you know, as they get older, you know, showing that you trust them with a debit card, but it's a, you know, with a finite amount of, of money attached to it. And I suppose in the early days, being able to monitor that and authorize the payments. So you get a sense of how they're evolving and how their attitude to money is. Um, and you're sharing your family values as well. Absolutely. Hopefully they're good ones. But <laughs> yeah, and again, I've seen families where, you know, they, they can afford to send their kids to university, but encouraging their kids to take on a part-time job while they're studying, it also gives them a work ethic. It gives them something to get their CV started. It gives them a sense of contribution and, and adding to the pot as well. Self-reliance so, as well, yeah. Absolutely. So it builds a whole load of skills. But in fact, the other thing is involving the younger generation in philanthropy. So going back to the sharing piece, you know, it educates them. There is an element of responsibility that comes with having some excess wealth in, in the bank. And so 
And that they have a role in society and a role in the world. Absolutely. And it's incredibly rewarding to give back. And young people that I've spoken to who are involved in philanthropy really enjoy that part of their lives because they get to meet people they wouldn't otherwise meet. They get a better understanding of just bigger picture things and and how, how money works without explicitly talking about money. And so there are a few skills that you can garner from from participating in in giving as a family. You know, it starts by identifying common threads or indeed not. You know, the, the kids might say, actually, you've been giving to that organization for years, but I'm more interested in, you know, the environment right now or I'm more interested in healthcare. Where, you know, so the parents might have been giving to an educational institution for years. Now, how do we align all of those goals? And so getting the family around a table and deciding, right, we can give to all three causes, but let's decide what percentage to, to give. And where it's going to have impact as well. Exactly. And that's the difference between philanthropy and charity as well. Some people don't always understand the difference. And, you know, charity is absolutely necessary and, and it's giving money to to solve normally a short-term need and then philanthropy is deciding how best to implement those donations and and to minimize the root cause of the issues that are being addressed in the first place and oversight of where the money is being spent i presume is important as well absolutely yeah we heard too many stories of people getting money then, you know, putting it in their own back pocket. And, you know, yeah. th- there's a constant need for vigilance there, isn't there? Absolutely. And governance. And, you know, again, we're seeing charities opening up board seats for younger members um, and younger donors to join. Because, again, they want to have a, a meaningful role in how the charity is implementing their resources. And... You know, all of that is a wonderful education and training for for people, you know, ahead of going into business. When it comes to financial institutions, like from your experience, would you have noticed much change in financial institutions? Are they paying more attention to women and to women's wealth? Are banks and asset managers paying more attention to women's portfolios? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't think there should be that much of a difference. I think the feedback that I've heard is that sometimes, you know, financial publications or product fund information might contain a lot of jargon and it might unnecessarily overcomplicate things. And I think that's really what it comes down to. It's like you don't need to simplify it, but you also don't need to overcomplicate it. And I think that goes for men and women. I think the difference is men will just nod nod and agree, even if they don't completely understand everything. Whereas women will, you know, either lose interest or will put their hand up and say, tell me more. Or I don't understand this. Yeah. <laughs> and would you be an advocate? Would you tell people to advocate for themselves more and say, if they don't understand, just ask a question? Absolutely. How? Yeah. How do they do that? You, you need to give people an opportunity to ask questions. It, maybe it does come down to, you know, firstly, you've got to build up the trust. Um, but also, if you're presenting in a room and there isn't really an opportunity for a Q&A versus a smaller gathering where, there, you know, it's just a nicer environment for, for Q&A. I think knowing when to do one versus the other based on your target audience can, can really make a difference. 
But in general, do you think there's still work to be done? I mean, we both know about Wealthy Her mm -hmm. in the UK, in London, and they are really big on this, you know, financial literacy. Absolutely. But also, you know, not talking down to people and, you know, giving that space for the Q&A, aren't they? So there must be a need for it. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like a third of the world's wealth is now held by women. And, you know, a lot of that is earned. Um, it's not inherited or the proceeds of a divorce settlement. It is earned. And, you know, I think working in finance, sometimes one can forget that not everybody understands the jargon. And, and it is just about thinking about a different way of explaining something. I think what happens as well with women in, in the business world is it could be that if they've dropped out of the workforce for a couple of years, that getting their confidence back can take time as well. From your experience, do you think banks and financial institutions are, are, are they doing enough for women entrepreneurs? One thing that I found fascinating uh, and shocking in equal measure was a, a TED talk um, done by a lady called Dana Kanze on startup funding to female founders. And it's super low. It's only around one to two percent. And so she set about, uh, you know, researching why was venture capital funding to female founders so low? And she looked at the line of questioning that was put to female founders versus male founders from, from venture capitalists. This is when they're pitching for funds, yeah. Yeah. Whether it's to do with unconscious bias or, or not, the questions that were asked to the female founders tended to be risk-focused, so mitigating risk, like the what-if scenarios, whereas the questions posed to the male founders were more focused on potential returns. And so there's a nuance there, but anybody with, with any knowledge of investing knows that you, you, know, you can't have return without an element of risk, but an, a disproportionate amount of weight was placed on one over the other. When, when talking to founders of different genders. So I thought that was quite eye-opening. And I think the evidence is also that women are much more likely to pay back the investment as well. Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, women tend to think longer term. And, you know, they'll think when they're setting up their company already about their exit strategy and put in, let's put in place the right structures to plan you know, to optimize the return at the time of the exit. Let's make sure the shareholder structure is in place. I mean, male founders will do it too. But I, I do think that there's, um, you know, there's just a lot more foresight when I have conversations with, with, with female clients and, and particularly entrepreneurs. 33% of, of global wealth is held by women in their own right. Um, and, and it's not all, you know, divorce settlements anymore because there's so many no. women in the workplace now and the senior no. ranks, yeah. And I've worked a lot with, with female entrepreneurs and executives. And um, in, in spite of all that, whether it's to do with maybe taking a few years out um, or starting work a little bit later, women's pensions are only 60% the value of men's. You know, that's something that needs to be addressed. Are, are, is everybody getting the right amount of information early on in their careers about how to maximise their pensions? And women live longer as well. Generally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So scientifically so we need more. So we need more in our back pocket uh, for, for, you know, into old age. So we know that women are staying in the workforce longer. They're accumulating more money over a lifetime and probably less, they're probably more risk averse. So... 
What would you say to banks um, and to financial institutions about paying attention to their female clients, to the women's portfolios in the world? Why should they be paying attention to women and women's money? Because women control $20 trillion of consumer spending globally. Well, they, they control the purse strings, don't they? Yeah. In most houses. They do. I mean, even if, even if it's the male joining the meeting, the female is the one making the ultimate decision. And that comes from everything from buying the family car <laughs> to the grocery shopping, to where they're going on holidays. To where they live. The home, absolutely. Yeah. Do you find that women are good at kind of managing their own finances or do they usually, I mean, the traditional way was that, that was all left to him or to the partner to manage. And really, I'll just get on with the day-to-day business. But what would your advice to women be? You know, the, the temptation is is often to, to leave the the excess liquidity in cash because it's safer and you're... you're you know, there's a fear of wealth destruction by taking risk, but actually really understanding and com- compartmentalizing the different pots going, OK, well, if I need this in the next year or two, yes, keep it in cash. But if you don't need it for, you know, five years plus, then really thinking about trying to get a better return than nothing on it is something to explore it's it's not easy and it yes of course there are risks but i think really firstly understanding what's the right amount you know that you need for your day-to-day versus what can you put away for the longer term is, is a good starting point has sustainability just become ubiquitous so many people are much more into it now has it become more important how does that manifest itself in the wealth management business I mean, it's certainly made investing much more personal than it than it was before. So COVID in particular, it made us all much more aware of our own mortality and that of our loved ones. And it placed a spotlight on our health and our well-being. And it also highlighted employers who prioritize the health and well-being of their employees. It also showed us the fragility of the planet. And I think what was really fascinating was when all the planes were grounded and suddenly the air was cleaner, you know, in a relatively short space of time. And so the, the reduction in carbon emissions, you know, the visible impact of that was really eye-opening for people, I think, because we could see things happening in real time. We could hear things as and well. We, indeed, yeah. Yeah, and so this heightened awareness of environmental, social and governance matters um, it, it highlighted the companies that were doing the right thing for the environment, for their employees, for their customers and for their investors. But it also highlighted the companies that were not right. They, they, they couldn't hide anymore and things became much more public. I think that combined with the increased use of Twitter, um, you know, it just takes one well-known individual with many Twitter followers to write a one-liner that can have a severe impact on a company. It is a, a new era for sure when it comes to to investing. It, it, you know, companies just, they can't just be not doing the wrong things. They need to be visibly doing the right things. And are they asking more questions? Are, you know, are clients asking more questions about, you know, ethically where their funds are being invested? 
Is it in oil and gas? Is it in, you know, responsible ethical companies? Do they ask those kind of questions? Sorry. They do, yeah. And they, you know, they do look for a, a financial provider who is deemed to be socially responsible as a company, um, investing in a fund manager who works for a, f- a fund management company who's deemed to be socially responsible, and, and then investing in companies that have, have good ratings as well. And, and, you know, the due diligence that, that has to go on, on on the fund management side is, is much more in-depth and the reporting requirements are, are increasing. Um, but, you know, it, as I said, it, it goes beyond just investments. It, it affects the bottom line because it's, it's feeding right through to consumers. You know, I heard an interesting statistic about millennials as well. And, you know, they're more likely to buy from companies who stand up for the environment that's 80% will look for that actively when they're consuming. Um, so being sustainable and ESG compliant is now expected of companies by employees, clients and investors, not just investors. And so people are expressing their personal values through their investments. That was traditionally something that was done by nonprofit organizations who would go to asset managers for ethical portfolios, if you like, but now it comes up with all types of investors, women, men, and the younger generations too. So do we have any information on ESG and where money is being invested and how that's changing? Yeah, so 2020 was a record year for investments into ESG funds. Um, they were, there were 1.7 trillion invested in, you know, by the end of last year, and half of all investments Uh, into funds were into ESG type funds last year there was a record inflow of 157 billion in the fourth quarter of last year so I mean if if companies aren't paying attention to where their money is being invested it's about their own sustainability really isn't it they have to pay attention to ESG and people are getting more curious about ESG and the environment because they're seeing it at their front door they're seeing floods in Germany fires in Australia and the west coast of America on, on bigger hurricanes in the United States. And, you know, it's really coming home to people's front door. This is real. It really is. Ultimately, the profit or loss of a company is going to be intrinsically linked to individual investors' personal values. And, and that's really what it comes down to. 76% of, you know, younger generations in the UK want to factor in ESG into their portfolios versus 30% of older generations. So we've talked an awful lot about uh, philanthropy, particularly when it comes to family firms and, you know, groups and how they should, you know, think about the impact of their investment in terms of their time and their finances. But how about you in your own life? Where do you put your energies and your finances when it comes to philanthropy? What do you do? A year ago, I was asked to join the board of um, an organisation called Sailing Into Wellness. So Sailing Into Wellness um, runs programmes all around the country What does sailing do for people? Sailing has been proven to help individuals who are going through therapy programs, giving them a sense of responsibility, a sense of freedom, a sense of perspective. Um, Whatever they're going through, we've, we've had feedback that when they're out on the boat, they actually feel much freer. They actually feel like they can make a difference because right there and then, you know, in, in certain circumstances, it's about survival and it's about going back to your most basic 
instincts and your most basic needs. Um, but more importantly, it's about being part of a team and, and having others rely on you uh, as well as depending on others and trusting others. Sailing into Wellness have worked with mental health um, organisations and long-term addiction recovery centres as well as kids on the autistic spectrum and also looking at working with people who've recently been released from prison. So it's all about inclusivity and involvement as well as an effective means of therapy for people. From what you've learned from working with a lot of men and then working in a more you know equitable environment and then working with people who are on you know a whole different plane what would your five pearls of wisdom be it's only really become more relevant to me of late actually um but when I look back it makes a lot of sense and that is you don't have to have it all figured out to move forward and you know it goes back to the analysis paralysis just sometimes it's just a question of just do it take a leap of faith life is not a race don't compare your beginning to someone else's middle. And they say, you know, comparison, if you start comparing yourself to other people, it's just going to lead to disappointment. So don't do it. Um, there's no need to say yes to everything. It's actually quite empowering to say no sometimes. Um, That's quite a difficult skill to learn, though, sometimes, especially if you're brought up to be a good girl, isn't it? And especially if you're a woman, I think we are, you know, well, I'm, you know, try to be a people pleaser, but... You know, sometimes, you know, within reason, I wouldn't say in your first year of your first job to be saying no to everything, but like know your limits, know when you need to take a rest and say no to something and it'll actually feel really good. Um, Gratitude is the best attitude. Now, that's one of my favorites because, you know, no matter how rubbish your day is, if you sit down and, and think about three things you're grateful for, in life, suddenly your day will improve. Would you do that at a certain point of the day or just when you're on the bus on the way home or? No, just ad hoc. You know, I think it's just important to remind yourself of, of, you know, despite challenges that there are some really great things going on and don't lose sight of those. The fifth one, which is maybe for people a little bit later in their careers, but not always, is if opportunity doesn't knock, build a door. Wow, I love that one. I've never heard that before. (laughs) Sounds easier said than done, though. Yeah, and I guess it comes from, and I don't know if it's an Irish thing or a female thing, but I often believed I needed to wait for permission to do things. And then I kind of thought, or I could just try and make it happen. And you do, when you feel ready, like people aren't always going to hand you opportunities on a plate. You have to go and create them if they don't exist already. When it comes to money, what was the best bit of advice on managing money that you ever got yourself? Um, You know, it goes back to that educating children on money and the two simple lessons that I would impart, um, you know, from a very young age, if I could, is it's not all for me and it's not all for now. I always find music's a real insight into where a person is at or, you know, what sort of person they are. What sort of music do you like? And, uh, you know, what's on your playlist? What's your favourite song? What's your go-to song? So music's one of my passions, but a solid favourite, which I've been lucky to see played live a few times, is Go Your Own Way by Fleetwood Mac. Um, a few others would be Sultans of Swing from Dire Straits, Modern Love from Bowie and Born to Run from Springsteen. But I love musicals, so the whole soundtrack of The Greatest Showman or La La Land 
would just get me moving as well. Did you go to see a lot of shows when you were in London? Do you know, it's one of those things that you would do with people when they came to visit as tourists. I didn't go as much as I should have. Um, but one of the very last things I did before lockdown was I went to see Waitress with Sarah Bareilles and it was phenomenal. And I knew I was with my best friend and I knew this is the last time I'm going to be out in the theatre for a really long time. And true enough, it was. But we're out the other end now. So uh, looking forward to that. Well, thank you so much, Shona, for giving us so much to think about in terms of our money, our philosophies. And you know, how those, I love the, the analogy it gives of the little pots and you know, how that starts very young, you know, and how we need to start looking after our world and our finances and how it's real. Thanks, Angie. My thanks to Shona Johnson, Director of Wealth Management with Key Capital in Dublin, this week's guest on the Women in Leadership podcast. If you like what you've heard, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And we're also on social media on Twitter at Leading Women Pod. The Women in Leadership podcast is an independent podcast aimed at improving the lives of women in all aspects of life and leadership. We would really love a sponsor to enable the organisation to grow and prosper so that we can help even more women. If you want to sponsor the show, drop us an email to info at womeninleadership.ie or contact us via the website womeninleadership.ie. We love hearing from listeners like you on what leadership challenges you come across, about your leadership achievements and ambitions. If there's anyone you think is really impressive or who has helped you that we should feature on the podcast, do let us know. Get in touch via the website womeninleadership.ie or by email to info at womeninleadership.ie. Until the next time from me, Angie Mazzetti and all on the Women in Leadership podcast team, goodbye and take care.